Well, it's good to be here this morning, back from spring break for a lot of us, and I was encouraged to hear Cody and, and the team. I talked with them yesterday about what was going on, so kudos to all of you that went. Not a small thing to give up your family vacation time to go on mission for the Lord, but he blessed it clearly, and, and hopefully it deepens your faith as you serve. Uh, as we dismiss for Children's Church, I think Abby this morning is going to be up front, so kiddos, you can come. Um, but if you'll turn your Bibles, we're going to go back in time. We're going to go back to the Old Testament and Jeremiah chapter 31 this morning. And as Rob said, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity I've been given to change my vocation and answer a calling that I think was from the Lord to go into the full-time pastorate. And uh, I believe that that's the way that God wants to move through his churches. I think it's the way he's designed the church to work is that from our midst, God raises up men that are qualified and trained and called by the Lord into vocational ministry. And for that, as Rob said, I'm indebted to you all for giving me that opportunity. And uh, I think the other thing that I've noticed is how you love on me and my family has helped mature me and my faith and hopefully in the long term making me a better equipped and more faithful pastor. But we're going to pick up where we left off last year. We're going to brush off the Old Testament. Your Bibles probably naturally will open to Jeremiah 31. Not only is it in the middle, but uh, do you ever get that situation where you realize you're just recreating what somebody else has done? So that, that hit me Monday morning and I texted Rob when I realized the Lord laid on my heart the exact same passage from Jeremiah that he preached almost a year ago to the day. And if you remember, we did our Old Testament series. We were looking through Christ in the Old Testament. And so Rob would pick a key passage that would highlight the gospel. And literally this exact same passage that I'm going to read this morning is Rob preached. I'm not going to spend a lot of time recreating what he spoke because I don't want to be accused of plagiarism, number one. Uh, but number two is Rob really did a great job describing how the new covenant relates to the work that Christ has done. And so you can go back, I believe it was in May of 2022, and you can listen to the message that Rob preached on Jeremiah 31. But for the next two weeks, we're going to use Jeremiah as a launching point in this series that I've entitled Kingdom Outposts. And uh, as I was wrestling with how to title this sermon series, I wanted to focus on what does it look like for the kingdom of God to exist here on earth? And what is our role as his church when it comes to demonstrating what it means to be in God's kingdom. And so last week, my family and I took advantage of spring break, and we drove out to North Carolina to go visit some family. And as we were driving out there, as I'm sure the Colorado team can relate to and others that are accustomed to long road trips, we made numerous stops along the way, mostly for our children, but a lot of times for Anna and I to stretch our legs as well. And so I'm grateful for Love's Travel Stops. Uh, that are all throughout the country, particularly on I-40. But if you do find yourself outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, there is a brand new Bucky's, and we helped christen it. So uh, God, God blesses immensely when we're on those road trips. But you all know my children, many of you, uh, ages 5 to 11. We get to those breaking points in our car where utter chaos is about to break loose, right? And um, my kids haven't yet read the book, but I always tell them, you're getting ready to recreate a scene from Lord of the Flies. And uh, 
I, I feel like a lot of times I'm going to be piggy, right? They're gonna, I'm going to be the one that, that gets the brunt of all their, their anger and frustration. But God provides a much-needed rest stop just when it's needed. And a lot of times I think we, we think of the Old West or when settlers would go out. Outposts were kind of those, those breaks in a long journey, right, where you would find rest, you could resupply, and continue on your journey. But as we do this series, I want us to think of outposts more from a wartime perspective. And so maybe you have family members, or maybe you yourself have served um, in a war. But when we talk about outposts, a lot of times you'll hear the military refer to them as forward operating bases. It's some, some place or location that they have designated strategically that's far in distance from the main camp of where they're stationed. But it, it can be used as an offensive or defensive position in a time of war. And ultimately, its goal, the perspective that you're trying to have, is that you're fighting the war on your terms and not on the enemy's terms. And so you create these outposts or these bases on the front lines as a means to help advance your cause. And so that's kind of the starting point or the framework of what I want us to think about. What would it look like for the church to be and act like a kingdom outpost? The Bible uses terms of exiles to describe our journey right now as Christians, but we also know that we are caught in an eternal conflict that has existed between good and evil, between God and Satan. And the church is wedged right in the middle and many times takes the brunt of those attacks. And I think if we take seriously the thought that the Lord has kept us here after bringing us to saving faith in Christ for a purpose more than our own pleasure and enjoyment, I think there'd be a lot of things that we would look at differently in our context of the church. And specifically, as we look at the new covenant promises, is what we're going to look at this morning in Jeremiah 31. What should the church look like in response to the blessings that God has given us richly in the new covenant in Christ? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. I'll invite you to stand with me. We're going to be reading from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 27 through 40. They'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bible, but I'm going to read this out loud for us. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build And to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out further, straight to the hill Garib, and shall then turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you that we have the opportunity to hear it and read it with our own eyes. And so we pray, God, that you would bring understanding that you bring clarity to it. Most importantly, Father, um, help us not be those that look in a mirror and forget what we look like and do that with your word. But may your word take root in our life. Would it help bring about application that we can become more like Christ? We pray all these things in his name because he's accomplished it all for us. So we praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, I'm not going to recreate Rob's sermon, but reminding ourselves of what we looked at in Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant, there's some powerful descriptions of the blessings that we experience in the new covenant. First, Jeremiah tells us that God's judgment is going to come to an end against Israel. And instead of divine judgment and discipline, God's going to focus on restoration And so in verse 28, if you look back there, you'll see these words he uses, sowing and planting, that mark this full restoration of the land for Israel. And then in verses 29 and 30, he gives this unusual description, right? It's not something that we probably would would say ourselves. But in 29, he says, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And the saying is to remind Israel that rather than assigning generational blame for their sin and the consequences of it, they'll instead see God's offer of grace and admit individual responsibility And receive God's grace through repentance. And then Jeremiah moves and he shows that going forward, all of God's energy is going to be focused on accomplishing these promises that he set out. Uh, The promises of this new covenant are unilateral. When we look at the Sinai covenant, the old covenant that God made with Israel through Moses, it was bilateral. Meaning there were promises of blessings and promises of curses, but they were specifically tied to Israel's obedience or disobedience to the Lord. 
And here God is saying, no longer is it going to be that way. My new covenant will be totally dependent upon me. And God will enable his people to enter into the new covenant by giving them a new heart that knows God and resists sin. And so we see in verse 33 that a result of that is that people no longer need to be taught to know the Lord because God's law has been not only written on their hearts, but they've been given a heart that knows the Lord and can obey. And then in verses 35 through 37, the new covenant is marked by fully forgiven sin. He says in verse, at the end of verse 34, I will remember their sin no more. And God uses these rhetorical questions and descriptions, drawing upon observations in his creation to demonstrate that it's his ability that's going to be able to keep this new covenant that will not fail. So first in verses 35 through 36, he says, just as the order of the universe can't fail, so God will never fail to keep this new covenant. And then he gives this other contrast that's back held against Israel's sin. And in verse 37, God states that if someone can measure the limits of the sky and the foundations or the depths of the earth, then it would be possible for God to remember his people's sin once again. And so both are rhetorical in a way of God's trying to encourage Israel to put confidence in God's promise that he cannot fail and therefore he will not fail to not only bring it about, but to keep it established. And so the Bible is clear, though, what we've been reading, that salvation is of the Jews. They are God's chosen people. And we see that in John four twenty two. Even Jesus reiterates that salvation came to the Jews. But the old Sinai covenant has been replaced with the new. Amen. And therefore, there's hope for us. And the Bible uses this term, Gentiles. At the time, it was specific to people groups that were outside of Israel. For us, it's a generic tie that if you're not Jewish, you are considered a Gentile. And so for us, we've been grafted into Israel. We see that in Romans eleven seventeen, And then we see in Ephesians 2, 11 through 20, that this dividing wall between the two has been torn down. And therefore, God creates for himself one people. It's no longer Israel versus the church. It is just God's collective people that he calls for his own through this new covenant. And then the New Testament assures us that we're in the new covenant now. So if you were to turn to Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 12, you'd actually see the writer of Hebrews quotes this same passage from Jeremiah that we just read. And the author of Hebrews is seeing that the new covenant is not only now in effect, but that the old has become obsolete as a result. There's further evidence that the new covenant's been established. Paul calls himself a minister of the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. And even Jesus, as we will celebrate next week as we take the Lord's Supper, tells his disciples that he is inaugurating the new covenant through the Lord's Supper. So signifying his blood that's shed for us, those symbols, Jesus said, mark the beginning of the new covenant that he established for us. And so as we think through it, though, if you're thinking through this passage critically, There's a couple of problems that we should pick up on in Jeremiah's description versus what we experience now, even though we are told by Scripture that the new covenant has taken place. 
So consider these couple of questions in relation to what we just read about the promises of the new covenant versus what we see in daily life. First, if the new covenant truly has already been established, why do people in the church still sin? If we're under the new covenant now, how is it that we as Christians are still tempted and drawn to do evil against God? I mean, doesn't Jeremiah's prophecy about transformation of our heart imply that people willingly and wholly love and obey God? Yet I know in my own life, I continually continue to fall short. Second, if the new covenant means, as he says here in verse 34, that people don't need to be taught to know God, then why do we in the church emphasize evangelism so much? Why do we say we are sent on mission at the end of our services each week? If the new covenant is operational now, how is it that most people in the world don't know God? And why know God? And why is evangelism a primary duty of the church? So to answer those questions, we have to start by realizing that the new covenant is part of what we're going to call the already and the not yet. It will be ultimately fulfilled and completed in the new heaven and the new earth when all the saints have received their resurrected bodies and we have been totally freed from the effects of sin. And part of that will be that the new heaven and new earth will only be filled with the saints and thus there'll be no need to know God. We'll see him face to face and know him in full. But to connect this idea of what we mean by the already and the not yet I think this helpful analogy may be useful. When we speak of Jesus as Lord, he is Lord now. But we don't see all things in subjection to him as they will be on the final day when he returns and judgment is exercised. And so we still live in fallen, sinful bodies that feel the effects and the temptations of sin. And we live in a fallen world among billions who do not know that this new covenant with God exists. And so therefore the church is the location where God has ordained the reality of the new covenant to play out. And the church is comprised of genuine, regenerated followers of Christ who still struggle though with sin and are also given a charge by Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. And so just as outposts are established as a defensive and forward-facing position, far and distance from the main source, so God has designed the church to be engaged in his holy battle against sin and to be the sending point from which the gospel goes forth. And so the church has a twofold responsibility. We're to guard the righteousness of Christ that's been given to us, and we are also to make Christ known where he is not. And so for the next two Sundays, we're going to build on this main theme. In response to the infinite value of the gift of the new covenant, each Christian ought to desire to live wise and righteous lives and to share the news of God's reconciling love to those that have not heard. So this week we're going to focus on this first part, the church's role and responsibility to demonstrate the blessing of the new covenant. And the next week we're going to focus on the church's responsibility to be sent on mission. So our first point this morning And there's only two, but that doesn't mean that the sermon's going to be any shorter than what we normally do. Sorry to get your hopes up. But the church is to demonstrate that the blessings of the new covenant first 
come through sinners that have been made righteous and holy. So think back on Jeremiah's description of the blessing of forgiven sin. God no longer remembers sin in the life of his children, those that are in Christ. There's no condemnation for our sin. And with our sin removed from us, God takes up residence in our hearts with his Holy Spirit. This is the summary of what Paul writes in Romans 8, where he says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ, and then launches into a beautiful defense of what we have received through God's grace. And, and we know Jeremiah's prophecy has come fully true. And that it's in Christ that we've not only received a new heart that knows and desires God, but that as 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, we've been made a new creation. The old is gone. Paul writes in Romans 6 that we need to realize we're dead to sin in the flesh. When we come to Christ, God places in us a desire to be holy as he is holy. And we've been studying that in our Sunday morning group as we go through 1 Peter. But this desire through our new life is made possible not because of anything we do, but because God has poured out his Holy Spirit into our lives. We see that in Titus 3, 5 through 6 that we'll visit later. But as Christians, then, we are to live with what we call ongoing sanctification occurring in our lives. And so let's define those terms, right? We, we use these terms. We see them in Scripture, the term to be sanctified. Um, but what, what is God doing? What has he done? And what will he do as we seek to understand the role of the new covenant? Well, to help us look at that, we're first going to look at Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. Paul is writing here to a young believer, Titus, and he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. What we can see in these passages, what we know happened when we came to faith in Christ is that we are justified before God by grace through faith in Christ. And being justified before God simply means that when God views your life, once you put your faith in Jesus, he no longer sees sin. He sees Christ and he sees his righteousness that's been fully applied to you. And that's where we get the word justification. And then glorification, what Paul writes here with the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Glorification is a term that we talk about either where God will send Christ to return and take us home with him or when we pass from this life through death. We will be glorified with Christ for all eternity in heaven as he is. But between those two realities, right, our justification that we have in hand when we put faith in Christ and our glorification of what will happen, of what God will do at the end time, is this middle gap where we live now. And in this period, we speak of being sanctified, or it is the sanctification process that we are living out. And so it involves two things. One is 
being set apart for holy service to God, but it also involves being made more into the image of Christ. So John MacArthur describes it this way. He says, sanctification is the single task of pastoral ministry. That's why we spend so much time speaking about being holy as God is holy. It's what's going on between the divine work of justification and the divine work of glorification in which we have become the God-ordained instruments that he wants to use. The work of the Holy Spirit in separating believers from sin is done by the word of God. Christ prayed the same thing over his disciples, and by extension, you and I, in John 17, 17 through 19, we know it as Jesus' high priestly prayer the night before he was crucified. But one of the powerful things he prayed was, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And as I read those words, and I hope you do too, it it stirs up in me affections for Christ that are rooted in the fact that Christ is now our life. Colossians 3, 4, Paul writes that statement. And growing up, there were these t-shirts. I don't know if they're they're still hanging around, but maybe you recall when I was in middle school and high school, they would say things like, football is life. You know, golf is life. You could insert whatever hobby or activity you wanted to. Um... As if my whole existence and identity tied around that one thing, right? But that's not what Paul means when he writes in Colossians 3, 4, that Christ who is your life. See, Christ is not a a hobby or an interest that we pursue, right? Young people, the, the term now that we're throwing around is deconstructing our faith. You can't deconstruct Christ if he's been made your life. It's not something that we put on and then we can take off when it's convenient or that we can think as we experience things in life, the Jesus that I knew at one point is Jesus different than the Jesus I know now. Jesus is not just trying to influence us so that we can influence others just to do social good in the world. Jesus is not seeking to create a movement. He doesn't need a movement. He's not a social club that we join And uh, no criticism of the movie because I haven't seen it yet, but he's not a revolution. You know, these are things that in our Western culture we latch onto because we like the theory of crowds and we like to see momentum. But that is not how Jesus conducted his earthly ministry and it's not how he left behind his ministry. So who is Christ? Let's remind ourselves, turn with me if you've got your Bible, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Who is this Jesus? He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is exactly what we live for and why we exist as Christians. There is nothing outside of him that can entertain us or that we can find value in. 
and God's grace instructs us how to live for Christ. And just as John MacArthur reminded us, which really he's just echoing what Jesus prayed, it's revealed through God's word, through the Bible. So take the simple question that's actually very healthy, um, and it's a wise question to ask. Maybe we all need to go out and buy some more as a church. WWJD, you remember those bracelets? What would Jesus do? Sometimes I think it's healthy for us to take that simple question and then filter through what you're contemplating in your life. But here are some things that I came up with this past week as I was studying this passage and thinking of my own life and the things I experienced even on vacation to help me filter my thoughts and my own motivations of my heart of what I encounter every day. So what would Jesus do? But what would Jesus think? What would Jesus feel? What would Jesus say? What would Jesus eat? What would Jesus drink? What would Jesus give? What would Jesus keep for himself? What would Jesus buy? What would Jesus sell? That may be a simple starting point, but if we're trying to grow in holiness and be sanctified with Christ, we need to filter the decisions and the attitudes of our hearts through what Christ would do because he is our life. And the word of God tells us to take every thought captive and to make it obedient to Jesus. And part of that is by filtering those decisions or thoughts, our attitudes, and yes, even our behaviors through the mindset of what does it mean really that Christ is now our life? Peter gives the final word on this first point this morning. When he writes in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 10. You can turn there, but if not, I believe it'll be on the screens as well. Peter writes and he says, His, being God's, divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There is nothing that God has left out that you've not been granted. And it's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Listen to this. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. So when we speak of sanctification, we're speaking of the response to the grace of God that's been given in our life. And that's what Peter's saying here. He starts off giving this beautiful description of the grace of God. And then he says, for this very reason. And so everything that we do in sanctification is a result of God's power that's been poured out in my life so that we can walk in holiness in the way that Christ lived. And and he uses this term, supplement, right? Supplement your faith. And then he gives us this list. But we take 
maybe many of us, vitamins and nutritious supplements for our body to keep it healthy and strong, right? But the question should be, what are we feeding our soul so that you can grow in your faith? God's word is clear that as we grow in sanctification, our faith becomes more effective so that what? What Peter says at the very end, that if we practice these things, we will not fail. God's not given us the Spirit to go unused, but He's poured out the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can be made more and more into Christ-likeness. But there's something else we need to make sure we grasp that Jesus prayed in John 17, and we can't skip over. Look at John 17, 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this is our second point this morning. The church has responsibility to demonstrate what it means to be restored in fellowship, not only with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, but being restored in fellowship with one another through restorative community. So God has given you new life to be grafted into the new covenant through his church. And he's given you his Holy Spirit to empower you to live for him in holiness and righteousness, but to do it in community with others that are pursuing the same things as being part of that new covenant. And so there's three subpoints that are on your bulletin, but if you're taking notes, I'll highlight them, that I want to focus on today with what we mean here at Northwest when we speak about living in community as Christ church. First is that new covenant community guards what has been entrusted to each member. In Deuteronomy 29, 18 through 19, if you've been doing the yearly Bible reading plan that we're doing through the whole Bible, we read these recently. But Moses, before he dies, addresses the nation of Israel, and he, said, and he warns them. And he says, beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations where they were entering into, the nations in the land of Canaan. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Jesus gave similar warnings to his church. He warns us to be on guard against sin that could slowly creep its way into the body and create disunity, or at worst, it could lead to unholy living in the lives of his people. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us very simple commands of how we are to guard community when we see a brother or sister walking in sin. And that is straight away from the faith of first how we are to confront them with the truth and, and restore them. But there's also a point that Jesus says and Paul goes as far as to say that it results in a stage where someone is unrepentant to the truth. That we have to purge the evil from our midst. You see community is something we guard because we've been entrusted with it by our heavenly father. But ultimately, we guard it because of what it was purchased with. It was purchased 
through the blood of Christ. And in order to guard the community we've been entrusted with, we must be humble and first submit to God and to one another. And this is an aspect of how we prove in our life that we have godly wisdom. So many of us know Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will do what? He'll make your path straight. But look at what follows godly wisdom. Be not wise in your own eyes. That sounds like Moses' warning of that man that says, I, I don't need to fear. I can walk in my own heart. But fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Compare that with what Moses said, right? Beware of the person that pridefully says, I can do this on my own. And then what is his description? It'll lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Basically, the person's life has just evaporated into nothing. And so, this church will experience those in our midst who choose to no longer walk in the ways of the Lord. There, there will be people who count themselves as members of us, but at some point in life will choose sin over righteousness. But we have a responsibility to first seek to restore them to the faith, bring them back, call them back to their first love, and ultimately call them to be restored back to the Lord. But we will also, as a church, have to guard at times by removing the influence of evil from our midst in order to guard and protect the community that's been entrusted to us. And this is where we need God's wisdom to know how to navigate those very difficult steps and conversations. So that was first. New Covenant community guards what's been entrusted to each member. Second, New Covenant community encourages one another to pursue obedience to the Lord. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If community fails in these areas, if it fails to guard, if it fails in encouraging obedience, we will reap what we sow. Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But then he goes on in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not grow, give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. God has designed that the blessings of being in new covenant are experienced through community with other believers and that's the importance of being a member of a local church. But we are called a royal priesthood for a reason. And the community of Christ grows when each member is doing its part to help one another reach maturity in Christ. And that brings us to this third point. New Covenant community has individual gifts. This sounds familiar, right? 
that are meant to serve one another, to build up the church into maturity, into Christ. So we've been studying this in depth. So I'm not going to try and make you sick over hearing another sermon on spiritual gifts. But Paul uses the description of a physical body and how each part has to be fitted together and work together to make the body work. And that gives meaningful connection to how we apply our spiritual gift in community with one another. And it's through our salvation that each of us has received a gift that God has poured out through his Holy Spirit. I said we go back to Titus. Look at Titus 3, 4 through 6. Paul writes and he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And the Spirit is made manifest, or it becomes tangible in our lives when each member is using their spiritual gift to serve one another in the body. The result is what? That the church is going to be mutually benefited. In Ephesians 4, 7 through 13, we won't read this entire passage, but grace was given to each person, a measure of Christ's gift. And then part of that gifting is having pastors and teachers that are here to equip the body to do what? The work of the ministry. And so our role is to teach the word, but our role as the church is individually to obey the word and using the gift that we've been given to fulfill the ministry that the Lord has given you to do. And the result, if we as a church do that, is that the church will grow in maturity into the head that's Christ. And so the Spirit's the one that inhabits every Christian when we're saved, and the Spirit is the one who's the source of power for us to live a changed life through the gospel. And so we're going to end where we began this morning. We, the church, are the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant. We know what's going to be revealed to us in the end. Jeremiah just gives us a a simple, glorious taste of what it's going to look like and what it will be like. And while we've been justified and one day we're going to be glorified, we live in the present where we need to be sanctified as Christ's church. Sin has been removed from your life through Christ's death. You've been made wholly clean in God's eyes. You, if you have put your faith in Christ, have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. And by the death and resurrection of Jesus, when God looks at you, you're not justified because of what you've done, but what Christ has done for you in establishing the new covenant through his blood. In response to the new covenant, we ought to live as people that are being made holy as God is holy. God's starting the work. He's going to continue the work, but he will bring it to completion as we obey his word. But do you ever think how jealous Jeremiah and these other prophets would be to see the spirit of God taking up residence in the lives of his people? I mean, this was everything they searched for. They suffered immensely to bring us this truth. And how on earth would God make this a reality? These were things that they prayed through, but they believed and hoped that God would do it because just as Jeremiah wrote, God will not fail in his promises. So for us, do we realize what we've received? What do we look like as God's 
people when we choose to ignore the glories and the riches of our salvation. You've been given everything you need to live life to the glory of God. And if God through his Holy Spirit, because of what Christ has done to reconcile your life to him, now lives inside of you, what's the potential for your life? We as Christians have inherited the ministry of the prophets before us. And we're to live righteous and blameless lives so as not to discredit our witness. I could have spent a lot of time focused on all the false witnesses, all the fakes that make up the churches around us today. All the hypocrites that are harming our witness, right? We could vent around the Southern Baptist Convention and the leadership's faults and failures. But that's not what Jeremiah's prophecy calls us to do in the new covenant. We are individually responsible for how to walk. Remember the quote? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Someone else's sin doesn't condone my lack of faith or throwing in the towel and giving up on my faith altogether. And individually, we choose to gather corporately here as the church at Northwest to guard what's been entrusted to us and then to encourage one another to live godly, upright lives in the view of the grace of God that we have received so that we don't discredit our witness. We cannot control and we're not going to be held accountable for what churches may or may not do around us. But we are accountable before God for what we are becoming as God's people here. And what a wonderful passage Jeremiah gives us here, right? This is one of the reasons why I, I relish the opportunity to be able to preach. Because all I get to say is just restate what God's word says and preach Christ. And there's no greater truth on earth than Jesus. So why waste our time speaking on anything else? And this passage also, it invites us into joyful repentance and faith. Regardless of where you view your life on the spectrum, God stands ready to receive you and to make you whole in Christ. And this passage, it gives us reason to celebrate what God's done, what he will do, and what he's doing right now through his church. So as we enter this Easter season, what will your life reflect in gratitude to God in return for all that he's done for you. He's given you his own spirit to take residence in your heart and he did it at the cost of his only son. This morning we have an opportunity to respond to that call of what God has done for us through Christ. But also what will our life look like in response to hearing the word? Uh, there's a new song that my family and I discovered on this road trip. It just came up on our Spotify as we were driving. And as I listened to the lyrics, it really struck me. And I want to read just a portion. But this is my prayer for our church this morning as we close. And the worship team will come up to lead us in a time of response. But this song, the lyrics go, Give me ears to hear when you're speaking. Give me eyes to see as you move. You made these hands to use for your glory. Set my feet to carry your truth. Rain down, rain down. Heaven, come and cover this earth. Fall on good ground. We don't want to waste your word. When your truth is hard to believe in, let our hearts be soft for receiving. Fall on good ground. Make us good ground. Let your words take root and the fruit be plenty. 
You are the vine, our only life. Let the good news grow when the branches flourish. You are the vine, our only life. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a good soil where your word takes root, where it grows, and where it produces fruit that reflects Christ and him alone. And God, as we enter this season of Easter, we look and remember the sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf, that this can be our life. God, may we cling to the promises of this new covenant knowing that they will be fully made known to us in the future. But for now, we have the opportunity to taste and to see the goodness of what awaits for us in eternity. And then to demonstrate to a lost and dying world around us how good you actually are. God, we need your spirit to unify us, to make us holy, your church. God, if there are areas of our life that are impure, areas of our life where we're discouraged from following you. God, we pray that your word will bring the strength, the energy, the focus, the perseverance that we need, that we would be righteous and blameless before you. It's all done in response to the love of Christ that's been poured out for us on the cross. And God, again, we we pray these things in his name because he is the one who is above all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of response, and I just encourage you, as you feel led, there'll be pastors up here at the front if you would like us to pray over you, or if you have questions about what we talked about this morning and you want to discuss more, we'll be up here at the front. But let's just take some unhurried time and reflect on the goodness of God that demonstrated us through Christ.